Hey guys, it is Tristan with Nerdette's Newsstand, and I have been doing these Ask the Expert segments for a few weeks now, and it's been going really well, but I never expected someone to come on like Dan Jurgens, and I just wanted to preface this interview by once again saying thank you to him for letting me do a short interview, about 45 minutes, and able to really dig into some of the history he's created, some of the characters he has infamously killed, like Superman, and look at him as a person. And it was quite an honor. So let me know what you guys think. Now on to the interview. With me today, I have Dan Jurgens, and I have been really excited about this. It's an opportunity of a lifetime. And recently, I just reviewed Blue and Gold, a great beginning to a six-issue mini that we're getting with a little bit of an update to maybe social media and what we're seeing with Booster Gold. And originally, when I heard the idea, I was like, okay, maybe that's a, that's a little different. But speaking of Blue and Gold... Can you give us an idea of the planning that went into the current series, which, like I said, only has one issue out now, but I really have enjoyed what we've seen so far. Uh, thank you. Yes. Uh, you know, it's, um, I think if we go back to when Booster was first created, uh, the idea was to reflect on some of the things that we were seeing in the world in terms of media and celebrity culture. And, and that's a little bit of what Booster was all about. And I think right now, that's even more prevalent today. And I think in a way, Booster fits the world of, you know, 2021, even more than he fit the world of 1985. So what I said is, let's take some of those elements and, and add Ted Cord as the Blue Beetle to the mix and try and do something that's a little unique for these guys and find something that touches on the world as it exists now and media as it exists now and social influencers as they exist now and make it part of the series. And I love that. Was it when it comes to Booster, didn't you say one time you were partially inspired by the 1984 Olympics and the endorsements that the contestants received? Yeah, in part in that, um, you know, if we go back to that time, the concept of amateur athletes was a little bit different than it is now. But even then, they were talking about as soon as someone uh, got their medal, they were guaranteed millions of dollars worth of endorsements. And that immediately took me down the road of, well, okay, that's all well and fine. But what if that also extended to superheroes? And that, you know, got me working down that road of how might that work? What would that look like? And, and really, I thought it was a very natural way to go and, and a very oh, uh, logical conclusion for anyone who's going to put on a costume. So I, I started to go down that road and building it out now. And one thing I would add, by the way, is that this is an eight issue series, not six. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's okay. Um, and, and I love that because right now you can pick up a camera and become a celebrity and boosters always even we saw it you know kind of in 52 with the endorsements and it's always been his thing but one question without spoilers of course and you can you can you know not answer if that's okay but batman not saying anything in that first issue about joining the justice league 
is Batman maybe the key to booster joining? <laughs> I, think, I think let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. Uh, Batman's silence speaks volumes about the situation. Yes. And yeah. I knew it once I seen it and I'm looking back at my old issues of booster. I think it was in volume two. And I'm like, I know I've seen this very similar thing before. I know Batman believes in him. So yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's pretty clear through what I've done, what Jeff Johns had done when he was writing the book and what Tom King has done, that Batman and Booster have a connection, right? So I, I think that Batman's silence was very well intended to make a statement. I love that. And I and I picked up on it right away, so I love that. So do you prefer, when it comes to creating and making comic books, do you prefer to do the writing, the artist, or do you prefer to do both? I think the, the answer would be all of the above. And, and that is because I look at myself as a storyteller. Part of telling a story is to sometimes draw it. Sometimes it's to write it. Sometimes it's to do both. And uh, one of the things I miss when I both write and draw is the creative collaboration that you don't get when you work with other people. Right. So in this case, having Ryan Sook on the book is absolutely fantastic because he is so thoughtful about what it is that he's doing on the page. And and I think he's built out a very unique look for Ted and Booster and the, and the style of the book itself, which is very important. Um, at the same time, I have just finished drawing an issue of X-Men Legends for Marvel that was written by uh, Fabian Nicieza. So it was fun to work with him too. And and I, I enjoy doing both. Um, and I also enjoy collaborating with others. When, when I draw uh, for another writer, it allows me to get inside their head a little bit, uh, just like I did recently um, with an issue of um, Marvel Double Action that was a Nighthawk issue written by Tim Seeley. It was 30 pages that I drew uh, written by somebody else, but I really enjoyed trying to do something a little different and kind of turn back the clock a little bit Marvel style. So it's it's all part of telling the story that makes a lot of sense and to me booster gold is a much deeper and more complicated character than what some people understand yes. and what drives me crazy sometimes is how he's handled he is handled sometimes like he is more of a joke and incompetent when you write him though you write him as that full even jeff johns of course too is, is that something that when your creation, something you made, something you put your heart and soul to is taken off as a joke? Is that something that bugs you generally? Well, I yeah. I mean, but I always get bugged when I see a character who I think is written inappropriately and misses out on who that character is. Booster is not incompetent. Booster is competent. And the, the way I always phrase it to people is that he does have his limits. Um, he is not perfect, but I think that's what makes him interesting. You know, if there's a plane that is going to crash into the middle of Metropolis, Superman is capable of flying up, catching the plane by its underbelly, uh, gently moving it toward Metropolis Airport, luring it right at the gate that it's supposed to end up at anyway. Everybody can deplane without so much as getting their hair messed up, right? If Booster does it, he flies up to rescue the plane, and yes, he wants credit, so he lets CNN know on the way that he wants them to film it. 
But then as he's lowering the plane, he struggles with it. So the wings clip a couple of office buildings on the way down and cause some damage. And eventually it's spinning a little bit out of control. Uh, so he has a hard time finding it, but he eventually he lowers it down in the middle of a busy intersection where it's going to sit for the next five or six days. In the process, people are saved. No one dies. There might have been a couple of broken arms on the plane. He still did the job. He just couldn't do it as well as Superman, which, frankly, no hero should be able to do the job as well. as Right. Superman. So I think that pretty much sums up who Booster is. Yeah, I think that that's perfect. And talking about Superman, I recall hearing that you uh, and the other superhero or Superman writing team had a different idea to bring Superman back from the dead when it was simpler during the death of Superman. But when the death became so huge, you kind of changed it. Do you recall any of what the original plans were? Well, we didn't have an original plan in how we would bring Superman back. What happened is we, we did the death of Superman without knowing exactly how we were going to bring him back. We really didn't. And, and we had some vague ideas, but we didn't know exactly how. We didn't know exactly when. Uh, we assumed that Adventures of Superman 500 would be the vehicle somehow, but didn't know exactly when it would ship or exactly how it would be done. Um, the creative teams all got together in a room, and we had four books at the time. Each of the teams had kind of a different idea of what they thought would work. We didn't agree on how to do it. And it's not like we were at each other's throats. It's just that we all had different ideas, thoughts, and directions. And at one point, um, Louis Simonson said, who was writing Man of Steel, kind of said something like, well, gee, you know, it's too bad we can't all do our own ideas somehow or something to that effect. And as we talked about it more and more, we somehow transitioned the conversation into, well, what if there were four different ideas? What if we did do our own? And, and what if somehow that ended up being four different versions of Superman, all claiming to be the real one? And then uh, as, as we explored that concept a little more, um, I came up with the idea of, well, what if one of them was a bad guy claiming to be Superman? Because, you know, bad guys never show up to say, hi, I'm the worst MFer on the planet and I'm here to <laughs> mess with you. They come out and they say, I'm a good guy. I'm here to save you. Right. And then they turn out to be the bad guy. So and, and that's really how we started to build out that idea. And as we talked about it more and more, we realized there was something there. And not only would it kind of deal with the problem of how Superman would come back, but it gave us another entire story to tell that, that would enrich the entire Death of Superman storyline. Yeah, and change storytelling as we know it, really. Yeah. Do you have a favorite supporting character of Superman to personally write? Uh, I would have to say that. It's Lois Lane, but I hate to call Lois Lane a supporting character. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, Lois debuted in action number one, just like Superman and Clark did. And, and I think she is more bound to Superman than is fair to call her a supporting character. Um, but for, you know, if we just use that term for the purposes of this discussion, it would have to be Lois because I think she complements Superman so well and says so much about who he really is. And the fact that uh, Superman 
as Clark Kent wants to relate to the people around him in such a way that he chooses Lois to be with, that's what says everything about Superman to me. That, to me, exemplifies his commitment to Earth, his commitment to people overall, and, and, and it also then gives us a way to get to young John Kent, um, who I think then becomes, you know, the perfect result of that combination. And that's kind of what we're seeing explored now in Tom Taylor's Superman. With him as Superman, we're seeing this combination of the best of Lois and the best of Superman. And I think it's working out one issue in, but still really well. How did the idea of Doomsday Origin and Hunter and Prey come about? Was it done to just kind of connect the dots or was it something specifically? No, it was as, as we were working on the death of Superman, we had, you know, we had Doomsday and we had never built out the backstory for Doomsday. We just pretty much, here's this dude in a cell and he punches his way out and he goes looking for Superman, right? And so everybody wanted to know, well, who is Doomsday? Where did he come from? So at that point, uh, since I had pretty much designed the character and everything, I said, well, why don't we do the origin? Here's what it could be. Uh, we can do it in this story called Doomsday, Superman, Doomsday, Hunter, Prey, and and fill in that backstory that everybody wants to know about. And um, <clears throat> I, I wanted to come up with something that really was different for a villain. And, and I think this um, concept of a villain who constantly evolves and evolves past the point where someone is able to kill him. He, he, you know, he dies and continually evolves till he can no longer be killed in that method. Um, I thought that was rather unique and, and very fitting for Doomsday. Oh, I completely agree. Um, and we see now it's changed from when I grew up, but we see basically superheroes being accepted into mainstream culture. Do you have a favorite live action superhero movie? Oh, I, you know, I would say probably if I have to identify a, a favorite, uh, I would go back to the first Superman movie from, I think it's 1978 or nine. Mm -hmm. um, just because that was such a quantum leap in what superhero movies were to that point that, you know, the tagline on that was you will believe a man can fly. And there were billboards all over town that were so effective, which was just a, a close-up of, you know, Clark Kent ripping the shirt open to reveal the S shield and, and the portrayal of the Clark Kent Superman duality was so good that I will always go back to that one. And, and as I said, because it represented such a quantum leap, I think, in how we could think of superhero movies. Obviously, there have been other movies that have come out after that that I think are better superhero movies. The um, what Marvel has done is absolutely astounding. I think uh, much of what Zack Snyder did is astounding. But I go back to that one as my favorite because of what it represented to me at the time. And I think what it did for superheroes on the whole. Uh, and part of it was just because from the minute the credits came on screen, if you were sitting in a theater, which at that time we still had, instead of like the mall theaters, we had theaters that still had these massive wide screens. You know, once those credits came on, which now don't look special, but at the time really were astonishingly special, 
you knew you were in for a, a very special ride. And so I'm always going to go back to that as my favorite. Oh, yeah, I don't blame you. It, it kind of paved the way for everything else. Did you, if I remember correctly, did you have any involvement with the Man of Steel movie? Um, direct involvement, no. At one time, I had been asked to, to write up something on Doomsday's origin that I could give to them. Uh, because obviously they were looking for a way to kind of handle the process and how do we explain Doomsday and all that. Ultimately, they obviously came up with something a little different, um, which was fine because, you know, they needed the connective tissue with the other characters in the movie. But uh, other than, you know, providing the source material in the story in the first place and some of the feet, some of the scenes and visuals, which I thought uh, Zack Snyder did a very good job of capturing on film. Uh, no. Okay. I wasn't sure, but I had listened to an interview of you earlier talking about it, and I was just curious. So speaking of movies, with you being such an icon, a mainstay in comics, what is it like to see that evolution? Because when I was growing up, it was us on the schoolyard trading X-Men and Batman and Superman comics with only three or four of us. And now it's it's massive. It, it, it's, yeah. I love it. I absolutely love it, but I still go back to those sorts of materials. That's what got me into comics. What's it like to see that massive and beloved by millions of inspirational icons to you? It's, um, as, as I um, remarked to a friend once a couple of years ago, it's remarkable to see how the nerds won, you know, and uh, because my background is very much the same where, you know, in terms of kids who read comics, I knew a couple uh, but, you know, by and large, the, the concepts of, you know, Flash, Green Lantern, uh, Captain America, and Spider-Man weren't necessarily part of the pop culture vernacular uh, like it is now. Spider-Man was a little bit because he was on TV for a bit in the mid-70s, as was Hulk. But even beyond that, it hasn't penetrated mass consciousness like it has now where so many people who may not pick up a comic book feel the need to go see the movie on Friday night when it opens up, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm absolutely amazed by it that, that um, I think I, I mentioned to Jim Starlin recently, you know, it's just astounding, astounding to me to think of how many people know who Thanos is. Right. Because oh, yeah. even, even when Thanos first appeared in the Marvel Universe, it's not like he was showing up in Marvel's best-selling titles. He was showing up in Captain Marvel uh, and then and then eventually met the Avengers. So it was it, it's just amazing to consider. Yes. Yeah, it is. And I love it because you can have more conversations with people, more people understand. And I remember hearing Guardians of the Galaxy were getting their own movie. I'm like, you're kidding, right? Like Guardians of the Galaxy was something that you barely had ever heard of, even if you were a comic fan at that time. And I'm more DC than Marvel, but it was like, wow, this is huge. Like this right. is when you know it is absolutely massive. So are there any characters that you've worked on that you would think would be great to get their own solo movie? Oh, plenty. And, and you know, I, it won't surprise anyone if I start with Booster. Um, but but I think the the massive and astonishing success of the Marvel movies to me is not that they made the Avengers work. 
you know, not that they made Captain America work or Spider-Man or those things. It is that they found a way to make Guardians of the Galaxy work, that they, they've gotten so deep into their bench that we've seen Doctor Strange and, and we're going to see Shang-Chi. And, you know, that to me is the magic that you can find the secondary and tertiary level characters, the B and C listers, as they say, and make that work. And I certainly believe that should be, you know, job number one for uh, DC and Warner, which is to do the exact same thing with theirs. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. A lot of times we talk about how that can be done to get caught up. I think it's just a, you know, introduction of those characters, making them mainstays like Captain America. But it's just going to take time. But when it comes to Booster about the live action movie, did you have any involvement when he was on Smallville? No, I, I really didn't. You know, uh, Jeff wrote, Jeff Johns wrote that episode and, and obviously was well acquainted with the character. So no, I did not have any involvement with that. I remember um, Jeff sending me the script. I remember him showing me uh, some photos from the set with the actor and everything. And I was, I was actually quite delighted with it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it definitely was. I was surprised to see him and then Jaime Reyes. It was really cool. So do you care to tell us a little bit about your Metal Man mini that you did with Mark Carlin? Um, any insight as to how that process went? Yeah, you know, it was part of the idea was at that time that um, if at DC, if they were going to bring an old property back, which Metal Men was, they just wanted to say, you know, what can you do to put a new spin on it? And for us, the idea was to set something up where the Metal Men were based on living counterparts. And that, that seemed to make sense. Um, we had a lot of fun doing it. And, uh, you know, it ended with Doc Magnus actually becoming one of the metal men. And I'm not so sure that was quite the right way to go because I think he's more interesting when he's human. Um, but it was a lot of fun to do. And, and I think part of it is just because drawing those guys and, and the bizarre shapes and everything that they're able to inhabit, it's fun. For, for artists, it's just a little different. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. And then when it comes to Marvel, your work at Marvel, you had a very long run on Thor that did a lot with the character. But what surprised me the most was how during, I guess, mainly the back end of it, you kind of use it where it felt like a Superman type story. What if the um, human half wasn't involved in a god, right? So what kind of being would he become? What was the connection? Was that connection between Thor and Superman coincidental or was it intentional? Was it something, you know, kind of universal among such powerful characters? Well, I think um, if you don't mind, I, I'd have to rephrase the question a little bit and I'll do so by <laughs> explaining this. I'm sorry. And that, and that is when I, when I took Thor on, I, I had friends ask me, you know, why would you write Thor? Isn't Thor exactly the same as Superman? And I said, no, not at all. They're very different characters. Um, you know, to me, Superman is human first. And everything he does is an attempt to be human. Thor is a god who, who comes to Earth for a bit, but never really renounces his godhood, right? And I, I do not see Superman as Kryptonian much in any way, shape, or form. He has no memories of Krypton. He wasn't raised as a Kryptonian. It's an alien form of life and behavior and language and everything to him. 
Um, Thor, on the other hand, is a god. And he, he was raised very much um, in that environment. And as I said, has never really renounced it. So to me, um, that's why in the very first issue of Thor, you know, I'd have people on the street come up to him and say, is it true you're a god? And he could say, verily, <laughs> you know, I am. Yeah, <laughs> that's who I am. Um, why do you ask? You know, and and he is the Odin son. And so I always saw them as as very, very different. So the the journey that I took Thor on to me seemed to be a verily, a, a verily, a very logical journey based on who he is and how he grew up. Whereas Superman to me would not go on that journey because of the way he grew up, that they're, they're very different, very opposite characters that way. Yeah. And I agree. I guess I never looked at it that way, but yeah, definitely more of a God, definitely more of a man. I, I really do get that. So a lot of people, when I initially announced I was doing the interview, wanted me to ask you about Batman. Beyond. Sure. Okay. And um, did you have complete creative freedom when it came to that? Were there any difficulties because it was so set in the future? Um, for the most part, you know, uh, we had a, a great degree of freedom. I, I mean, we did two versions of Batman Beyond, right? So the first one, it was dealing with Tim Drake as Batman. And, and I think, you know, that could only go so far. Uh, and th then we kind of fixed that and eventually brought back Terry McGinnis, who I think all along had, had to be Batman. And I think Terry to me is a very interesting character. I think the world of Batman Beyond is very interesting. And what I liked about it is that we had that sense of freedom to pretty much tell the stories we wanted to tell. So, you know, we could explore the Joker years from now. We, we could explore this idea of a brand new false face years from now and, and play around with the idea of who is Flash by that point, you know, things like that. Uh, and, and get to the point where we had a new Batwoman. Uh, we introduced Damien as, as a much older character. So, uh, yeah, we really did get to do what we wanted to do and tell the stories we wanted to tell. Oh, that's wonderful. Is there any character that you haven't worked on that you would like to? You know, there are a few out there that I would probably like to explore more. The reality is that I've probably gotten to touch at least briefly, most every character I've wanted to touch, um, maybe not get to the point where I've been able to spend a lot of time with them. Sometimes that's just the way it goes, but I've been around long enough that I really have gotten to do just about everything I've wanted to do. That's amazing. That's, that's a fulfilling career for sure. So how was it like with working on Just Imagine with Stanley, creating that you know dc <laughs> universe secret files and origin was that a totally different experiment experience well, you know, the, i i had uh also done something else with stan um for byron price publications and there's the 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 fun thing about working with stan is when the phone rings and it's stan on the line saying hey dan it's stanley <laughs> you know and and because you know stan is stan uh, through and through. And so it really was fun in part just because 
when the phone rang and it was Stan, by the time you hung up, you couldn't wait to go to work, right? I mean, it, it's part of it is just the honor of working with Stan, but part of it is because he brought that sense of enthusiasm to it that made you as an artist say, all right, I got to get to work right now. I'm going to work all night and get five pages done for Stan, you know, and, and I think that was the fun of it. Oh, yeah, that passion seeping through. So you know, I, asked, I asked you which characters. Is there any professionals that you haven't worked with that you'd like to team up with? Yes, and they know who they are, and I'm not going to list them here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm yeah. sorry. I yeah. totally well, okay. understand that one. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to your idea of Superman and aliens, where did that come from? And was there any plans for Kara? Well, so that, that's kind of a fun story because uh, this goes back to like 1991. And um, I was on a trip where we were doing a uh, retail sales conference in Hawaii uh, and then a convention in Australia, in Sydney. And so it was Mike Carlin and me uh, from DC along with uh, Bob Wayne from sales and um, Mike Richardson from Dark Horse Comics. One night we were all sitting out in kind of a outdoor eating luau type environment. We just got to talking about somehow we just got into this idea of a Superman aliens crossover. And wouldn't that be fun? And, and you know, the, um, the main idea had to be that eventually we would see the chest burster come out of Superman's chest through, right through the S shield. Right. And we were all saying, oh, that would be awesome. But to do it, Superman would have to lose his powers, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then, um, you know, not long after that, we all got back and, you know, we had had a fun conversation about it. And I said, well, you know, was that conversation real? Is this anything we ever do? We would ever do because I can't stop thinking about it. But we just couldn't really advance the ball. Um, and then once we had done the death of Superman a year later and raised Superman's profile, all of a sudden, you know, it was something that the aliens people wanted to see. So we, we put the pitch together and, and built it around this idea of, of exactly what I explained. Eventually the, the chest burster had to be part of that image, right? Coming <laughs> up through the S-shield, which we used in the, in the hype machine. Um, but to make this work, Superman had to lose his powers for a bit. And that's where I said, and then we can have this young woman there named Kara. And for me, I always thought that it would be great fun to see her come back and, and become part of the DC universe. But the problem is, if we did that, we could only ever do it by, you know, we could never show it again because of the nature of crossovers uh, and different corporate properties and i would always have had to say well that time superman and kara met fighting you know alien beings would be about as close as i'd be able to get um and and the shame of it is i thought it was a great project i'm very proud of how it came out we had a great team uh with kevin nolan uh on inks who just did such a beautiful job and greg wright on colors and i i just did a convention this past weekend in Connecticut, which was terrific on. And I ended up for some reason signing a bunch of those. And I had to say, well, you know, I hope you enjoy it now because this will probably never get reprinted again uh, because I think the right situation would be too complicated. So oh, yeah. um, for those of you who haven't read it, go out and find it while you can because you won't see any new additions, I fear. 
Yeah, and you'll absolutely enjoy it. So recently, Dan DiDio had attempted this definitive timeline for the DC Universe. And I know a previous attempt occurred after Zero Hour, which you were involved with. Right. What was the difference between the first attempt and the more recent attempt, if you know of anything? Or do you th- what's your opinion on giving that definitive timeline when it comes to the DC continuity? I think overall, it's a great idea because I think it's something fans love. Um, when we did it in Zero Hour, I swear, we spent almost as much time, it feels like, putting that together as we did the entire five-issue series. And that isn't literally the case. But what is true is that we spent a tremendous amount of time on it. And and we wanted it to be meaningful. And from the moment it came out, fans responded to it like 99.9% positively because they want that kind of thing. They want to understand. And, and this is the thing I always told Dan is that one of the mistakes we made with the New 52 is that we lost the context of how characters fit together. That, you know, we had just seen Superman earlier, married to Lois Lane, and now all of a sudden here he is, he's with Wonder Woman. And what does that mean? And and how does this fit together? And I was um, working on Green Arrow with New 52, and I'd say, well, did Hal Jordan and Oliver Queen have their road trip or not? And some editors would say yes, and others would say no. And if we didn't know as creators, then fans didn't know. And that meant fans didn't have context for how how heroes fit together. And I think when we ask fans to buy into this notion of a universe and a shared universe of characters, that they like that notion of context. So uh, with Zero Hour, the the timeline, I think, worked very, very well. And, And I think what I saw of the timeline for what may have existed maybe you know, for future DC <laughs> may have worked well too. I mean, obviously there are places where you have to stretch, but I think it's something that, that fans and readers like, and because, you know, the reality is that, you know, readers are aware of where these characters fit. You know, we, we can't tell them you didn't read this. It didn't happen because they know they read it and they know that it happened. That's the reality of comics. Right. And and to come out and say, well, there is no Earth X and there is no Earth 2. You might have read about it, but it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't really work because they read it. They know it's there and they in many cases liked it. So um, I think without becoming slaves to continuity, I never mean that, but this idea of being able to build a universe and timelines in which these characters can coexist is generally important. Oh, I completely agree. That's one thing reading now into Infinite Frontier. I'm like driving myself crazy. What earth is this? Where does it, you know, we've got crime syndicate. Obviously we know they're not on, Earth Alpha, and it, I drive myself crazy, but I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm well, being you know, patient. Here's, here's the problem. There's there's um, an old saying in sports about football teams. Everybody knows me knows I'm a football fan, right? And there's <laughs> an old saying about football that as a coach, if you think you have more than one quarterback, it means you don't have any. 
And that makes a lot of sense because it means oh, you yeah. can't decide who to start, who's the guy. It means you really don't have one that stands out. And I, and I think to a certain extent, if you think everything exists, then in a way, nothing exists. Yeah. Because and that, it, it gets but, too complicated. Yeah. And that's exactly what I said. The problem was after death metal was if everything matters, then at a point, nothing matters. You need hey, structure. There exactly. has to be structure. Exactly. And that's, and I, I'm hoping we get there with the infinite frontier mini, but that was one thing that was just driving me crazy. And speaking of something that may or may not have existed, and I don't know if you can or cannot answer this. Did you have any involvement with the different generations, the fifth generation 5G? Yes. Yeah. And um, I think it's fairly obvious that that became a different sort of project from what right. it was originally um, uh, set up to be. And, and I think, you know, it became, uh, you know, like Generations Shattered and uh, another companion book that I think were a lot of fun. Um, but obviously, it's very different from what was originally talked about. And, and I think, you know, not by me, it was put out by DC's own uh, publication uh, machine as, as what Generations would be, which is too bad because I think we had set up something that uh would have been you know rather profound oh i agree i think sometimes comics as a fandom doesn't like to evolve or change they like to see the same things and they like to see their favorite characters and it's hard for them to accept new and that's really unfortunate that's why i like talking about some of the new characters or doing origins but i knew when i set out a timeline trying to go through the 5g stuff i was just so confused but speaking of generations how much of that was the original plan or how much of it changed? Is there any, you know, I know it was only two part at this point. Is there any going further? Is that, you know, is that it? Oh, there were, there were a lot of changes. I mean, what, what we ended up with um, didn't bear really much resemblance at all to what we originally started with uh, in part, because what we originally started with was supposed to be, uh, something that was much, much different and, and kind of a definitive explanation of the DC universe. What we ended up with, which was more of its own story that took place in its own universe, um, I think there would be a way to do plenty more stories like that. Uh, I don't think it'll happen um, because of all the changes we have seen at DC over the past year or so that it's a very different place now. I, I don't know that they want to pursue that, um, which is too bad because I think there are ideas and concepts there worth pursuing that I think people would like to see, but I just don't think that it's in the cards. Oh, that makes sense. So I've got one last question for you. Back when DC would do their fifth week events, you did your unique universe. It was an Elseworld. It was totally different, right? The tangent universe. Yeah. You care to share any interesting details about the genesis of that project or well, the um, Superman's reign follow-up? Sure. It, you know, really um, what I was, what, what I always found interesting is I, I had had a couple of conversations early in my career with Julie Schwartz, just asking him about kind of the silver age, you know, and this idea that they just took the character of the flash, the character of green lantern, Adam and more, and just said, well, let's try it again, but re-envision it a little bit. So, you know, when Flash came back, instead of 
Jay Garrick, he was Barry Allen. And instead of the World War One style helmet, you know, he wore the red mask and, and an all red suit. And um, really what, what stuck with me in those conversations with this, was this idea of taking these names and just re-envisioning them and saying, let's pretend we're, we're just going to start all over again. We'll use the names, but we'll start all over again. So um, I had conversations with Paul Levitz and Mike Carlin at DC saying, what if we did that again? What if we just took Flash, Batman, Superman, Green Lantern, Nightwing, and we, we started to re-envision these so that Flash, rather than a speedster, was really a flash of light that would appear and reappear out of nowhere. And that Green Lantern, instead of being a character, was really about a Green Lantern and, and a woman that would carry that lantern around through cemeteries where she could bring people back from the dead to right the wrongs in which they were killed. Um, or Nightwing being more, instead of a single character, <laughs> a paramilitary organization. And Adam, instead of being a diminutive character, being the most powerful character in the DC, in that universe. And so I, I wrote up um, pitches on probably like 30 characters. We winded those down to, you know, the initial, I think, what, 10, 12 books uh, without using Superman, Batman, or Wonder Woman. And what we did is we gave each of those character blurbs, one paragraph basically, to different writers and said, you know, here it is, run with it. Here's Metal Men. Run with it. Here's uh, Doom Patrol. Run with it. Here's, just because I thought it was a great title, I, I ended up doing that one. Here's Nightwing. Run with it. Take these concepts. Take these names. Take the Joker, uh, Carl Kiesel, and just run with it. And, and in a way, that Joker was very much the precursor, I think, to kind of a Harley Quinn type character. Oh, right. So, yeah. And, and just run with it. And we'll call it Tangent. And it's its own universe. And, you know, I always had hoped that we would see more of it. We didn't, unfortunately. But, you know, more than we did. But we did do Superman's reign. And it was a lot of fun. And I think all the, I think the different creative outputs that went along with that were a lot of fun as well. Oh, yeah. I think even as a reader, it was a lot of fun to check out and know these characters, but not know these characters at all. <laughs> right, right. So I wanted to thank you so much for coming on here today. I really appreciate you making time and, and kind of giving me, you know, crazy nerves, but it's so worth it. It's so oh, worth it. <laughs> my pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye. Yep. Goodbye.